Welcome into TYT's The Conversation and happy Monday. It is Adrian Lawrence and today I am joined by UCLA professor and author of Beyond the Valley, Ramesh Srinivasan. And as you may know, cuz we see him often, Ramesh speaks about intersections of tech, innovation, politics, business and society. Thanks for joining us, Ramesh. Hello, Adrian. It's great to see you after a couple of years. Yes, it's great to see you as well. And you know what? It seems like a lot has changed, especially this whole new metaverse thing. Like, what is this stuff? I mean, this is the strategic direction that big technology companies are taking us. And, you know, we also need to recognize that what we might call big technology companies or big tech is no longer restricted to merely tech, right? So, like, if you think of a company like Airbnb, right, it's a technology company on the one hand. But we're also talking about the biggest hotel accommodation company in the history of the world that basically you know, fails to unionize almost anyone connected to its enterprise, extracts value out of transactions between someone who may want to rent a place in Uganda and someone who's renting a place in Uganda. So it's thousands of miles away. So really what we've seen during this pandemic, Adrian, is the massive takeover of privatized and corporate forces that are driving digital technologies of all kinds into our lives, right? We've been dependent on platforms like here, Skype or on Zoom, all of which are grabbing and harvesting and extracting data to amass the greatest amount of wealth and valuation in the history of the world. And we can see ourselves heading more and more in this direction with climate related challenges, pandemic related challenges and um, and really just generally the privatization of public life, which is I think what we see occurring here. So now we all hear about this creepy metaverse. I was talking to my students. Uh, so you know when the Francis Haugen, right, the Facebook whistleblower disclosures came out, uh, I did a lot with the media, progressive media and like democracy now and also a lot of mainstream media. And the day after that, and I don't think that's accidental, Facebook decided to to change its name and therefore signal a certain identity of itself as meta, which is an allusion to the term metaverse. And so metaverse is the idea of a universe that takes over everything, right? Like think about the term meta, it takes over everything, right? It's not pluriverse, which would be multiple verses, it's metaverse. So why are they talking about that and what is that? So you know, if, if it's okay, I just wanna give folks a brief breakdown so they understand yeah. the things they need to know about this. So metaverse is a term that came out of cyberpunk literature. I don't know if you ever read that kind of no. stuff. <laughs> it, it, you know, when I was like a kid, I was pretty into sci-fi, like dystopic sci-fi, but also just sci-fi speculative fiction. You know, I used to read like Octavia Butler, who's like a black sci-fi author, but others too, right? And so Metaverse comes out of the writings of Neil Stevenson, who wrote this book called Snow Crash. And he's sort of similar to this other well-known guy named William Gibson, who's another very famous cyberpunk literature. So this was this idea that they were all writing about, about basically that there we would reach this world, there would be very little distinction between our bodies and our digital selves. We would There would be very little distinction between bits and atoms, and all we would need to do to kind of plug into other worlds, you know, kind of like Matrix style, would be to just tap into the metaverse. So the metaverse, you can kind of see allusions to this in some of Blade Runner, um, some of like these old like dystopic sci-fi movies, like a little bit Terminator and and um, 
you know, and Robocop and things like this. But basically what it is, is a new virtual world that uses virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. Kind of like Second Life, which some of us might remember from like 10 to 15 years ago, where we will all communicate, <laughs> uh, sort of. We will all uh, interact. It will be like a new world we inhabit, but that world will require a couple things. It will require the use of these augmented reality glasses, right? So note, yeah. company like Facebook owns Oculus, right? Which is its glass uh, sort of interface. Google owns Google Glasses. A lot of other companies own other kinds of what we call interface devices. And when you enter that world, that world like we were talking about yesterday is kind of like Truman Show, right? Or a gated community. You enter in this world and the architecture of the world, the design of the world is completely driven by the private company, just like a gated community, right? It will all honestly be rife with surveillance and for and, and it's it's a signaling by Facebook that that's the direction they're heading in. But it's actually not, this is not just about Facebook. Every pretty major tech company, or really companies in general, Microsoft, Google, others, they're all experimenting with different versions of this metaverse. So imagine if you go into this world, you have these glasses on, and say you want to, uh, I don't know, date someone. <laughs> or say you want to uh, do some financial transaction. You do it all on there. But the thing is, just like the way big tech has invaded our lives, every peer-to-peer -peer interaction, there's a little demon in the middle that's monetizing it, surveilling yeah. it, and manipulating that interaction. And that's exactly where they're heading. So when I was talking to my students about the metaverse, like the day after the Francis uh -huh. Haugen testimony, they were all kind of laughing and cracking up. They're like, who would want to wear these dopey glasses? Who would want to like enter into this strange world with like these, you know, hyper pixelated kind of cheesy looking avatar characters? And I explained to them that that's not really the game here. What we're at, what's actually occurring is they are trying to incubate a new market, a new territory for extraction of data, just like the environment is extracted by various forms of capitalism, just like labor was, has been extracted for surplus value, like people like Marx wrote about that centuries ago or a century right. plus ago, right? So like, yeah. so it's heading into a, into a place that's not the cheesy goggles, but brain machine interfaces like Elon Musk's Neuralink, right? And it's heading into a world where the graphics are gonna be that much more powerful. Wow, 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 that is a lot. And it, and it really seems like that is an, a lot going on. And it seems that they definitely have their corporate private agendas, which would be getting our data and probably being able to capitalize on it. Would that be accurate? Data is the most valuable commodity now in the history of the world. And anything that could be quantified or, or, or treated as data has now become a new commodity of extraction. Yeah. Wow. So when you and I had spoken a little bit about this at one point in time, you mentioned that this is going to end up being kind of this new type of feudalism. Can you break that down? Yeah. So basically, think about it, right? If you enter the metaverse, you have to pay to play, right? If you're a business and you want to advertise your services, you have to pay rent, right? In that world. For all of us who participate in these worlds, you know, and we are kind of not sure what's happening or why we're seeing what we're seeing or what is occurring. So that's very similar to a kind of feudal type of system. It's not a kind of, obviously, we've gone so far away from free markets here and even kind of oligopolic capitalism. We're talking about a new kind of digital feudalism. The economist Yanis Varoufakis has talked a lot about this. And so it's sort of, or even on Amazon, you know, you're kind of, they're kind of charging rents. Just think yeah. about that. It's kind of rent, it's a rent based mm -hmm. model. 
Yeah, and it definitely, it's a model that's problematic in part because it just, you know, raised the price of prime, but I won't get into that. But I would imagine too, in creating these a whole new world that people have to operate in, that there are gonna be a number of issues such as labor issues, is that right? Without question, right? And also if you think about what the goal of all these companies are around their metaverses, they're triangulating intimate behavioral data, geographical data, commerce data, web services, cloud-based data to all triangulate it. So what's left for workers, huh? That's the question. What's left for the middle and working classes, right? Note again, the doubling of wealth amongst the wealthiest in the world, most of whom are connected to tech during this pandemic, right? So this is another very, very troubling move for pretty much everybody, but those who have <laughs> equity and ownership of such companies. Yikes. And you know, it really seems that this is something that I know we've been very busy in terms of a pandemic and now this war in Ukraine and Russia, but it doesn't seem like something that people are really talking about at the mainstream media level at all. So I'm wondering essentially, how is this issue being handled? If you can see it, I would imagine others can. So why hasn't, you know, the mass population kind of known a little bit about this? Because we've yet to see major spectacles or controversies, which you know we know sell with our media, break out, at least with mainstream media, break out around this, right? Because it's a new kind of space, a new sphere that's being introduced into our lives by all of these corporate, all these you know dominant corporations. So you know, just all the crises we've seen, for example, with Facebook, all the disinformation issues, all the labor issues, all the manipulation issues, all the stuff we've seen around racism and, and, and sexism with various algorithms. I know we've talked a little bit about it, Adrian, like just in passing. All of those things are gonna refract themselves on this world. But yes. here's the kind of crazy thing, like you could be in a metaverse, I could be a metaverse, we could be sitting right next to one another and never intersect even if we're in the same metaverse, but we could also be in different corporate gatekeeps metaverses. So we'll see what happens, you know, but this this thing sure as heck needs to be regulated and there needs to be greater social and political action taken around this. It definitely sounds like it. And we only have a few seconds left, but can you tell us what should the everyday individual do to kind of prepare for this? I think we I think we need to be very wary of, of of using any of these systems. I think we should try to advocate with our legislators, even if they don't know much about it. Usually sometimes their staff members do to try to do anything we can to change it. To let them know we're not okay with these things being introduced without like the proper kind of public based governance, right? Because we're seeing technologies introduced across the board that are threatening people, facial recognition, AI systems, algorithmic systems, and they always threaten the most vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And that's why we gotta stop it on both our personal level as well as any public engagement we have. Awesome, Ramesh, and can you please tell the viewers where they can find more information about you and the work that you do? Well, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not that active. I don't think I'm not as active as you, Adrian. Uh, Ramesh Media, so R A M E S H Media. Oh, it's right there. Um, also, my website. So I'm a professor at UCLA, um, but RameshSrinivasan.org will reach me. And you know, my goal is for us to humanize technology so it serves all of us and our planet. And I I have optimism that we can get there. But I appreciate you all having me. Well, I definitely appreciate that in terms of your optimism and for all of your insight. Thank you for joining us, Ramesh. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Let's keep this insight train rolling. And this time, I am bringing you the founder and CEO of Medics Global. That's an organization that provides unique medical management solutions aiming really at democratizing healthcare and reducing unwarranted healthcare variations. 
by improving accessibility, quality, and affordable affordability, excuse me, of medical care. And that is Sigal Atzman. Thank you very much for joining us, Sigal. Thank you so much for having me today. Very proud to be on your show. Yes, and we're very honored to have you. Particularly, we know you do a lot of work abroad, nationally, internationally. And with this war between Russia and Ukraine, we know that essentially there are some medical supply issues going on. Is that right? Well, as in any war, medical supplies, medical services, doctors, just accessibility to healthcare are a big issue. In this war, it is even worse than ever. It is really difficult. It is even more complex to get supplies in. You know, we have quite a lot of experience with medical support and humanitarian aid. This time it has been very complex, different occupation zones, and it's changing every hour. We need to rethink how we're doing, who are we contacting on the ground, and it's getting worse every minute. Wow, and so um, you said it makes it very complex. Are there anything that's going on that's specific that really makes this so much different than in other instances of conflict? Well, first of all, the attacks direct on civilians and the changing geography. So within such a big country, you have areas that are where you have a lot of Russian or Russian soldiers already. You have other areas that yesterday's yesterday you had less missiles or less violence, or, or you had more Ukrainians and you could collaborate and through different borders like Poland, you could bring in supplies. It's getting more and more complicated. Um, we were trying two days ago to bring cancer treatment in, in by ways of, of um, pills, just simple medication boxes to um, a family that was two hours away from Kiev. That's not possible anymore. They begged not to leave their country. They really wanted, they were running out of medication and we tried everything. And tonight they're actually boarding a car and trying to flee because they understand it's not possible and we couldn't make it. What we did do is we managed to bring in a ton of medical supplies. A ton is quite a lot, baby powder milk, um, special um, wrappings for burns and things like that. So we did manage. But it's getting more and more difficult and more dangerous also. Yes, I would imagine very dangerous, especially given that we're not necessarily getting truthful humanitarian engagement from the Russians in particular. And when it comes to ensuring that people get the medical services and assistance that they need, are you running into issues when it comes to actually, I guess, figuring out what's really going on here? And I'm sure that informs the level of support you can provide. We have zero collaboration from the Russians, although we tried. But we have a lot of people on the ground in Ukraine, Ukrainians and still non-Ukrainians. And they still work on their phone lines, on their mobile cellular lines. So we get information, we get information of where people are. We have people at the borders and we have a lot of different people in different countries really collaborating. So people in Germany, people in Poland, we have people giving up their apartments, waiting at the borders, taking people in their own cars, in buses. I've never seen ever Europe so united and the world so united. And everyone, everyone is trying to help, but it's very difficult on the ground. I, I can say that we do get information that seems reliable from the ground from Ukrainians. And, and they're just so brave, so resilient. Adrian, this is so inspiring. Oh, it's 
really incredible. And it's quite inspiring. You wish you weren't, uh, it didn't come to this, but uh, it's good to know that people do have the resilience and that they are doing the best that they can under the circumstances. And I definitely know that you and Medics Global are doing the best that you can given the circumstances. And also you had mentioned essentially the unity with Europe and other nations really looking to support and ensure that Ukrainians are getting the medical help that they can, uh, that you can get to them. So if you could tell me, I guess, who are you finding is funding you more? Are you able to get resources from other countries, from private donors, contributions? I guess, who is able to make it happen? So we fund our own donations. So we are a healthcare company that provides services to customers spread in over 90 different countries with offices in 12 different countries on the ground. And our employees, our team members, we ourselves have funded uh, this one ton that was sent to uh, Ukraine and continue to fund. Um, we have partners and companies we work with that just offer to our ties on the ground to also donate. And I'm, I'm reaching out to anyone um, through our website. They can reach out to us, anyone who wants to donate or help or support. Uh, just please rise and stand up and, and cry with us and try to support. And this is a fight for Ukraine, but this is a fight for for democracy. So we fund our own donations, but we reach out to everyone out there and say, everyone can do the same, small or big. Every small gesture makes a difference. There's so many Ukrainians out there who cry for help. Yes, indeed, and we're watching a lot of them on television and being able to see the distressing situation that they're in. And so to be able to have services like you provide at Medics Global, it must be something that is very important for individuals there on the ground, ensuring that they have the medical services and the management help that they need. And also when it comes to potentially working with hospital facilities, those or even just the makeshifts medical facilities are being made there. Are you able to get in contact with them and to essentially be able to offer your services and support? At, at this point of time, hospitals have become shelters. People just go on the, you know, under ground floors, minus one. They just try to find shelters. Hospital beds are taken downstairs. Children who had surgery who were supposed to be in ICU are dragged into shelters. I my heart cries to say, but these are not hospitals anymore. It's really anarchy. There's no order, There's nothing works like before. And in my, in, in what I feel on the ground, it's getting worse with the hour. So the 24 last hours have been worse than the last few days. And unfortunately, I will try to sleep tonight, but I don't know if I'm gonna wake up. Um, and the people that were still alive a few hours ago, I don't know if they will be alive. I don't know if those children in those hospitals will be bombed or not. And we take it one hour by the hour and we try to reach out to people. We have people on the ground. We know a lot of families. Truth, you know, one family brings the other, they get our, our phone numbers, and, and it's just like a big net of a lot of people from different countries who are trying to help and are getting together and trying to help. But what's on the other side is changing. And I feel that Russia is becoming more and more brutal every day. And honestly, I don't know what we're gonna wake up to tomorrow morning. It's terrible, it's really terrible. It is indeed, and I think that's something that we are all uncertain of as well. And in terms of the experience for Medics Global, is this your first instance in being in a conflict of this size? 
So we have done a lot of humanitarian aid and medical aid um, with this big COVID wave in India where people were dying in the streets. Um, we, we supported China in the beginning, really in the beginning of the pandemic where healthcare workers were drawn into un, in, in, impossible situations. Um, we've done a lot of work with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We have also offices in, in Tel Aviv. We have a lot of offices in the Middle East and um, in Asia. So we've done a lot of crises, but this amplitude, this vastness, this brutality, and the asymmetry between the victim and the aggressor is just almost unrealistic. Is this David and Goliath? What, what are we dealing with? And what are where are we going? I'm not really sure we know. We this is a very sensitive, sensible situation. If we push too hard, we're getting into World War III. If we won't push and more sanctions are not gonna come, then Vladimir Putin will just walk through Europe and you know take a smaller, bigger, or very extra large piece of, of his own cake. Um, we need to make up our minds how we want our future to look like. And we need to stand tall, not to stay still. And um, I think we need to ramp up our sanctions. Yes, and I think it's a very difficult position that we're in, particularly as you mentioned with Vladimir Putin. Actually, um, essentially waving before us the potential of World War III, given his access to nuclear weapons. And kind of speaking of nuclear, uh, I know we have some concerns, especially with Chernobyl and the other um, potentially very disruptive instances of nuclear power plants and whatnot. Is that in any way factoring into how you're able to provide medical care, given the potential for a whole new set of injuries if in the event that we have some kind of nuclear explosion? Well, currently it doesn't impact at all. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but right now it's a threat. Everyone speaks about it, but no one really believes it's going to happen. Does that make sense? I can't tell you. If I, I can share that about three weeks ago, I was talking to very prominent people and saying, you know, I think he might do it. Vladimir Putin might go and get in. He's planning, he's serious about it. So many people said, oh no, Sigal, he won't. He's just threatening, you know, it's not really going to happen in here we are. And now we speak and a lot of people tell me nuclear war is not going to happen. I don't know, do we know, Adrian? Do, you, do we know where we're going? Right now it has no impact, but I cannot tell you we're not on the right straight walking into World War Three with a nuclear, maybe not this massive nuclear situation. But I cannot say no, um, I don't think as much as we think Putin is predictable, is he really? It's a good question and I don't think any of us have the answer except for Putin himself and he may not have it. But either way, we know that this is a very volatile situation and it's very upsetting. But in uh, also in context, we are so grateful to have the work that you do uh, as the founder and CEO of Medics Global. And so if people wanna get more information or wanna lend support, where can they find you? www.medics-global.com. Um, I'll repeat that, www.medics-global.com. Just send us an email, we'll be very happy. Just stand up and, and just reach out and we'll do everything we can to help the Ukrainians. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Sigal Atzman, founder and CEO of Medics Global. Thank you so, so much, keep safe. 
and let's hope for better times. Yes, indeed. Thank you.